Uh, Father, thank you for sending your son. Uh, Thank you for the glorious chosen one sent to deliver sinners like each of us in this room. And for the good news that has been preached to us, that is confirmed by his life and death and resurrection, and the hope we now know is secure of eternal life with you. Uh, Father, I pray now that you would allow us to both see the glory of Jesus and to hear his words, for them to sink deep into our hearts and to change us. We pray that this would happen until the day of his glorious return. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. A few weeks ago, Precious set up quite an event. She got about 50 homeschoolers, including our family, to go out to a local park in the middle of the night. Uh, She got a naturalist to allow this to not be illegal. And um, it took us out on what's called a night hike. Now, the naturalist assured us that when the sun went down, that because it was a full moon and it was going to be a clear night, that it would be more than bright enough for us to go marching through some pretty deep woods and not to be stumbling over logs or falling into creeks and the like. I have to admit, I was more than a little bit skeptical. I mean, 50 rowdy kids going off through dark woods. But sure enough, as the light of the sun went down and then that bright orb of the sun Uh, of the moon took over, Uh, the light, that pale light from the moon was more than enough for us to find our way. As far as I know, no one fell into any streams uh, during the course of that whole night hike. Now, our passage this morning has a sort of light uh, dawning upon us, but not deep in the woods, uh, but high on a mountain. It's not the pale glow of the reflected light from the moon but the radiant glory of the very Son of Heaven, Jesus himself. Uh, We come to a passage that's commonly known as the Transfiguration. And it's a vital passage for us to understand who Jesus is and what heaven expects of us, uh, those whom he has been revealed to. Uh, This morning we're going to move through it in three sections, three things that we see about Jesus. First, in 28 through 29, seeing his glory, seeing his glory, then in 30 through 31, discussing his exodus, discussing his exodus. Then finally, in 32 through 36, confirming his sonship, confirming his sonship. And in all of this, uh, I pray that you will both gaze upon the glory of Jesus and that you will listen to his words. Gaze on his glory, listen to his words. Let's begin in that first section, seeing his glory, 28 through 29. Now, before I uh, go there, I actually have a bit of a debt to pay. Uh, Last week, I indulged in a uh, practice at least as old as preachers uh, go back for 2,000 years now. Uh, That is leaving a difficult verse to deal with next week. Uh, If you're here with us, uh, we got to verse 27, and instead of explaining what it meant, I said you should come back this Sunday if you wanted to hear the explanation. Well, thank you for indulging me, and I will make good on that. And there's a reason I did that beyond needing an extra five minutes for my sermon last week. It's that the explanation for verse 27 is tied in with the passage we're studying this morning. I'll I'll read the verse so everyone is caught up on what it says. Uh, But I tell you truly... 
There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus was explaining to his disciples that he needed to be crucified as part of being the Christ after uh, Peter's great confession. And then he started filling in what it would mean for them, that they needed to be ready to be crucified with him as well daily uh, to give up their lives to become his disciples. And then he had this enigmatic verse, verse 27. What in the world does it mean? Um, theologians have puzzled over it down through the ages. Um, sometimes it's under, um, uh, I, should, I should explain why it's difficult to understand first. Uh, there's two main difficulties to it. It's pulling in two different directions. Uh, the first is it seems like it's describing the coming of the Son of Man, uh, the second coming of Jesus. That is, when the kingdom of God comes to earth in a visible, final way at the end of the age. Uh, it seems on the surface to be describing that, but there's a second problem. Uh, that's, he promises that there are some there that won't die until they see it. And we know from history that the people hearing Jesus talk didn't leave more, live more than a few decades. So what in the world did he mean? Well, theologians have been turning it round and round for centuries at this point. Um, the, the, the main sort of explanations they came up with usually center around things coming up that would be close enough but are still significant enough to sum up what Jesus said. So maybe he was referring to his resurrection from the dead or maybe to his ascension or maybe to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost or maybe to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Um, you can find theologians ascribing to all those views. I, I think the best one actually is to understand um, that Jesus is describing an event that is well described as a preview. Um, a little confession, I am a giant Lord of the Rings nerd. Um, back in high school, college days, the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out. And so my friends and I were very, very excited to go see the movies. we go see the midnight showings as soon as they came out. Um, we may or may not have dressed up when we did so. Um, it got so bad that at one point, we were desperate even for the trailer of one of the movies that was about to come out. We, we had to be the first to see the trailer when it debuted. And so some marketing genius said that if you went to see this movie that we would not be caught dead watching otherwise, I think it might have been a romantic comedy, that at the end of that movie, there would be the trailer for the next Lord of the Rings movie. So of course, we all bought our tickets, sat through some movie I don't remember at all, and got our three-minute Lord of the Rings fix. Um, and that was a preview, right? You know, that's what a trailer does. It gives you a little taste for what's coming. It takes the parts of what's coming and it brings them forward to the now to whet your appetite for what will be here later. Well, if you just keep reading the Gospel of Luke, and in fact, every other of the Gospels that has this section of Jesus predicting those that would be uh, not taste death until the coming of the kingdom, uh, in all the Gospels, immediately afterward comes the transfiguration. And I think that's our answer. I think it is a preview of what is coming. Uh, the day when the glorious King Jesus returns to usher in his kingdom upon the earth. The transfiguration is a preview of that day coming. Okay, so now that I've paid my debt, on to the passage. Um, the way the passage breaks down, we 
pick up the action eight days after the last discussion Jesus and the disciples were having. Only this time, there's just three of them there. Peter, John, and James. Uh, they go up on a mountain, and they are praying. And I need to pause and draw your attention again to this theme in Luke. Uh, the importance of prayer in the life of Jesus. Anytime there is something major that's about to happen, we will find Jesus praying. He prayed before his baptism. He prayed last week before Peter's grand confession that he was the Christ. And now he is praying again uh, before heaven will reveal his glory to his disciples. Uh, certainly there's a lesson for us here. As Christians, we are to be people constantly on our knees in prayer. There's never, not a time we should be praying. And, and yet when there are significant transitions happening or times that feel significantly weighty, it's all the more appropriate for us to be on our knees, finding fellowship with God and asking his blessing. Uh, Jesus prays, and I think we're supposed to understand what happens next, at least partially, is in response to that prayer. And what is it that happens next? It is his glory finally unveiled and shown to at least some in this world. In verse 20, 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Uh, Luke doesn't uh, use any extraneous words, just the bare basics. Uh, Jesus' face changed and his very appearance of his uh, clothing and his body started radiating with a heavenly sort of light. I think immediately we are to, supposed to remember back in what is going to be the first of a whole series of Old Testament allusions in this passage to what happened to Moses back in Exodus 34. Just a note, since there can be so many Old Testament allusions, uh, you might actually just want to jot down the chapters and you can study them later this week. We won't have time to read all of them together. So in Exodus 34, uh, Moses had just been up on the mountain and having this meeting with Israel's God. And when he came down, he had been so, uh, so close to fellowship with God that God's glory radiated out from his face. He actually began reflecting the glory of God. It was so intense that the people asked him, please don't come near us like this. And as a solution, he veiled his face so they wouldn't have to look at that bright, reflected glory from God. Now that picture of Moses coming down from the mountain of God's presence, shining the very glory of God from his face. Uh, I think we're supposed to pick up on that as Jesus in his own face and appearance begins shining heavenly light. Only there's a difference. Uh, Moses is like the light from the moon, but Jesus is like the light from the sun. Uh, Moses shone for a time as a reflection of the God of heaven and his glory. And yet Jesus is the very light of the world. Uh, he shines from the inside. Uh, this is the real Jesus that they are seeing for a brief moment. And he doesn't need to borrow glory from anyone. Uh, Jesus, uh, for this moment, is shown to be who he has been from eternity past. Uh, yes, it's true. He is the son of Mary. Uh, yes, it's true. He was a carpenter and a teacher and a miracle worker. And yet that's not enough to sum up the man that was Jesus, because he was also the eternal son from heaven, uh, truly man and truly God. 
Uh, we Christians believe something called the doctrine of the Trinity, that the three, God, uh, uh, three persons of God have existed eternally, um, that the, the eternal son, Jesus, has forever had the full glory of God. For a time, to be sure, that glory was hidden. As he walked around through Jerusalem and walked and talked and did miracles, he was not glowing like this moment. And yet, from before the world began, his was the very radiance of heaven. Uh, he didn't reflect it. He, sh he shined it himself. Now, I think one of the applications we need to take from this is a tendency that many Christians have to unintentionally diminish Jesus. Um, sometimes in an effort to make Jesus relatable, uh, we speak about him in a way that is frankly just incomplete. Um, I once saw a, it's kind of like a comic strip. Uh, it showed Jesus as uh, a friend who's taking your phone call. And as he takes your phone call, you lay out your problems to him, and, and he gives advice kind of like someone out of a Hallmark movie, you know, just kind of like self-esteem boosting, loving advice. Um, and uh, I, I get what they're trying to do. Uh, yes, it's true that Jesus wants warm fellowship with us, that we can always come to him in prayer, that he accepts us in his loving arms, that he empathizes and sympathizes, he understands us, all of that is true. And yet it's not the whole picture of Jesus, is it? Uh, he is not just the accepting friend, he is also the Lord of heaven. Uh, he's not just someone that knows you personally, he is someone who's guiding the very cosmos and upholding it by the word of his power. Uh, Jesus can't be just our spiritual boyfriend or our soulmate, he has to also be our Lord and our master and the king over all. Uh, don't diminish Jesus, because as you do, you actually diminish the glory that you would enjoy in your own heart. Uh, you can't look on his glory with your physical eyes right now. One day you will. Uh, but right now you look on him with eyes of faith. Don't just see him as your friend and companion. See him as also the Lord of all, the Lord that is the light of the world, and the one that will, guidely, uh, that will safely guide you to his heaven. First scene we see is of Jesus and his glory revealed, and that leads to the second scene, second part of the scene at least. That is, why is it that Jesus even came in the first place? Verses 30 through 31 discussing his exodus, discussing his exodus. Uh, here we see Jesus, the real Jesus, can only be understood if you understand his mission. Why did he come from heaven in the first place? We're told an odd thing in verse 30. Uh, Jesus was met by two men. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Uh, we're not told how they appeared. We're not told how Luke knows who they were or the disciples then recognized them. We're just told that they're there in glory. Now that does tell us something significant. Uh, Moses and Elijah had ended their earthly course hundreds of years ago. Uh, Moses buried in a grave nobody knew except God. 
Elijah carried up in a chariot of fire to heaven. And yet, here they are. Uh, the fact that they are in glory suggests that they have been spending at least part of the interim in present heaven, in the glorious presence of the Father and the angels. And yet, for some reason or the other, they are given leave to come down from heaven for a very important meeting, a, a meeting with the man Jesus. Theologians have puzzled over why they are here exactly. Could it be that Moses represents the Old Testament uh, law and Elijah represents the Old Testament prophets? Uh, that could be. Uh, I, I do wonder why Elijah would be chosen as the prophet uh, to represent the, the prophets. There's lots of other good candidates. Um, as I thought about it, I, I think there's a better explanation. I think they're actually both describing the prophetic ministry that went on in the Old Testament. That's people revealing things on God's behalf. But they're prophets that point different directions. Uh, Moses is representing a pointer going backward. Uh, he is the prophet back to Sinai, the place where God made his covenant with his people. Uh, Moses is showing that fully in concert with that covenant is this moment that's here. Elijah, on the other hand, he's a prophet of the future. Uh, if you know uh, the, uh, your Old Testament well, you know that Elijah was expected to return. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Uh, Malachi 4 and verse 5. Uh, there was an expectation that as the final day drew close, that great and terrible day of the Lord, that Elijah still had a role to play. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Uh, there was this expectation that at whatever was coming in the end of all things, that somehow the prophet Elijah, he was pointing toward it and had a role to play. So for Moses and Elijah to show up side by side, it's like two giant arrows pointing somewhere, opposite directions, and yet somehow both pointing to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, the fulfillment of all the prophecies yet fulfilled to come, all of it stands for this purpose, to reveal the man, Jesus Christ. They are said to be speaking to Jesus, and what they speak about is highly significant to this purpose. Uh, we're told that they were discussing his coming departure that had to be accomplished in Jerusalem. Uh, that word for departure in the Greek is the word exodus. If you know your Old Testament, that's highly significant. The exodus is not just a book of the Bible, it is an event. Uh, it's how God took his people out from what seemed like a place of sure death, Egypt. And by a great display of his power, through judgment, uh, brought them through the, the waters of the Red Sea parted and to the promise of life with him forever. Well, apparently Jesus has a sort of exodus of his own that's about to happen. And it's going to happen in a place called Jerusalem. Uh, you see, you can't understand who Jesus is until you understand what he came to do in that place of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had a mission. 
to lead God's people on an exodus, uh, not out from Egypt, but out from the death of their own sins. Uh, he would do that by taking on the very judgment of God as he hung on the cross and gave his life as a sacrifice. Uh, Jesus would pass through death. Uh, for three days, it looked like the grave would conquer him. But then on the third day, Jesus would emerge to a new life, an indestructible, eternal life, a life that he will rule uh, God's kingdom from uh, with for all eternity. And now he invites God's people to follow him on that path through death to eternal life in his eternal kingdom. Uh, I don't know exactly what that conversation with Moses and Elijah was like, but I do know this. They had longed for this moment for many ages past, looking forward to the day when the Christ would be revealed, uh, the one who would be the true Pascal lamb that was slain, uh, the one that would lead God's people to the promised land. And now here it is, Jesus on his exodus from Jerusalem. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, I don't know what uh, might be going on in your life this Thanksgiving. It could be that you've had a very difficult year and you find yourself struggling to find reasons to be thankful. Gratitude seems like it's in short supply in your heart. I hope this one truth will at least give you something to be thankful for in a fresh way this Thanksgiving. Uh, that God loved you so much that he sent his son to lead an exodus so you could pass through death and then make it to the promised land of eternal life. Uh, that you are secure in his grace and that you will spend eternity in fellowship with God because of what he accomplished on a little hill outside a town called Jerusalem. If you're a Christian, what Jesus did on that day, he did for you. Let that fill your heart with gratitude this Thanksgiving. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a Christian or maybe you even know that you're not, uh, I hope however much you understand about Jesus, that you will understand this basic thing that the Bible very clearly reveals about him. He came for a purpose. You can't really understand who Jesus is or you can't really see his glory without understanding what he did on the cross and what happened in the resurrection from the dead. Uh, the basic Bible message is this, that we are enemies of God that deserved death for our sins, but he sent his son so that we could be forgiven and experience eternal life. All we must do is repent, trust him by faith, and follow him on that path from death to life on his exodus. I don't know how much you understand about this at that, this point. It's okay if you don't understand it all. But I invite you, ask questions of Christians. Find out more about Jesus so that you can decide for yourself whether he is who he claims to be and whether he can do for you what he claimed he could do. There's one final thing we're going to see about Jesus this morning. And that is confirming what Peter confessed in our last passage, who he is, verses 32 through 36, confirming his sonship, confirming his sonship. This week I came to a realization, Peter is the Babe Ruth of the disciples. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, well, we know Babe Ruth for, well for 
uh, one thing usually, and that is hitting lots and lots of home runs. Um, he, in fact, broke the home run record, 1927, hit 60 home runs. But Babe Ruth is actually on the books for that year for breaking not one, but two very important records. He had the most home runs and the most strikeouts in the same year. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means he took a bunch of really big swings. Sometimes he hit and it looked awesome. And other times, even more times, he missed and struck out. Uh, last week, we saw an example of Peter swinging for the fences and hitting one out of the park. Um, he was asked by Jesus, along with the other disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed a confession for the ages. You are the Christ of God. Right on the money, Peter. You spoke so well that you didn't even know exactly how well you spoke in the moment. But history would reveal you got it right. Uh, well, this passage, though, shows the other side of Peter. Uh, winding up and taking another big swing, uh, but this time missing everything entirely. Uh, so badly does he miss that Luke is not ashamed to say that Peter literally had no idea what he was talking about when he said something. Well, what is it that he saw? Well, we're, we're told, uh, verse 34, um, as they were saying these things, the, uh, I'm sorry, but a couple verses earlier, uh, verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him, they were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as they were parting with him, uh, from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that there, we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So Peter, half awake, as the disciples often are, sleeping through the prayer meeting with Jesus, uh, he gets woken up by this radiant light coming from the face of Jesus and sees this heavenly scene of Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. And he has a reaction that's a bit puzzling. He says, Jesus, it's good we're here. Um, why don't I make some tents for you guys? One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. Now, at one level, maybe Peter was just filling a silence that seemed very awkward to him. You know, sometimes people do that. Uh, it just feels like someone's got to say something, so you say anything that comes to mind. Maybe that's what happened. Um, I think more likely, Peter's reflecting Jewish thought of the day for what was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Jewish men were required uh, to celebrate that period of time where God's people were out in the wilderness, and he provided for them the food they needed and the clothes that didn't wear out. Uh, they did that by building little shacks in Jerusalem and living in them for a time, remembering that period where God was faithful. Well, by this point, it had not only become something to remember what happened in the past, it also began pointing forward to the expectation of what would happen when the Messiah arrived. Uh, God would provide for his people in a tangible way on that day as well. So it could be that Peter thought, okay, this is, this is the moment we've been waiting for. I mean, Elijah's here. Jesus is the Christ of God. Let's build the tabernacles. Let's enjoy this moment. But there's at least two problems with what Peter has in mind. Uh, the first is that the way Peter presents this plan, it's as if Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all on par with each other. Uh, there's three great prophets 
Moses from the Old Covenant, Elijah about the New, and Jesus as the Messiah. And they're all kind of even. But if we remember that that's not the case with who Jesus is. No, all the other prophets are just pointers to Jesus. They're just window dressing to Jesus, the glorious son from heaven. So that's the first problem. The second problem is if Jesus took Peter up on his, uh, on his offer here, then Jesus would have stayed up on this mountain, at least for some time. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke is going to show us that Jesus has to get to Jerusalem. Uh, the whole rest of the book is about him getting there and what happens once he's there. And so a very real way, what Peter is offering is a barrier to Jesus accomplishing the work of redemption on the cross. The very reason he came from heaven to earth. Uh, Peter has no idea what in the world, word he's, world he's saying. And Jesus doesn't even dignify uh, what he says with the response. In fact, there's only one other set of words that's spoken. Uh, the final word that's given from heaven itself. Verse 34, And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. I think we are supposed to remember back to the Old Testament cloud of God's presence. It was how God showed he was with his people. Uh, first in Exodus with the pillar of fire and cloud. Then it came to rest in the tabernacle to show this is where God dwells amongst his people. Then when Solomon dedicated the temple, that cloudy presence inhabited the temple building. Uh, and then there was that horrible moment when in a period of God's people being unfaithful, the cloud of his presence left the temple and did not return. It was a way of saying that you have forsaken my covenant and now you are under my judgment. Since that point forward, the Shekinah glory, the, the cloud of God's presence has not been seen by anyone in the nation of Israel. And yet now it comes right on the spot of the man, Jesus Christ. The glory of God is seen in the very face of Jesus Christ. His presence is uh, made known in the person of Jesus Christ. And accompanying that cloud is this heavenly voice. We're told that the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The Father's speaking. It gives, uh, says three things, each of them steeped in the Old Testament. Two of them are declarations, and one of them is a command. Uh, the first one, this is my son. Uh, certainly that means Jesus is the eternal son from heaven, we've already talked about. Uh, but it also more directly means Jesus is the true king of the kingdom of God, and the heir of the throne of Israel. Like Psalm 2 calls him, the, the king of Israel was called the son, the son of God, the heir of David's line. Uh, Jesus is that heir, and he will one day sit on that throne forever. Uh, second, he is the chosen one. Uh, that harkens back to Isaiah, uh, where God sets apart a servant, his chosen one. Uh, that servant will preach the good news of the gospel to the poor and the oppressed. 
and that servant will himself bear the sins and iniquities of the people. Uh, that servant is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who the prophets pointed forward to. Uh, that's who he is, confirming the very thing that Peter claimed in his confession. He was the Christ of God. Here, the final word from heaven reveals Peter was right on the money. The third and last thing is the command. You must listen to him. Uh, that takes us back to Deuteronomy 18. Uh, Moses predicted, just as he spoke for God as a prophet, that there was going to come from the people of Israel another prophet, uh, someone who would also speak for God. And on that day, you will listen to him. Uh, Jesus is that prophet. And not only is he fulfilling that prophecy, the obligation of it is rested upon the disciples that heard it and all the rest of us down through the ages who through their testimony hear it ourselves. Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is the one with the glory of heaven. And when you gaze on him, you don't just see him. You must listen to him. Now the disciples don't understand that fully. Uh, the scene ends with them in a scene of befuddlement. Uh, they keep silent and told no one about what they saw. Uh, the cloud receded, uh, Elijah and Moses were gone, Jesus stopped glowing, and they just sat there, not sure what to think of it. And in fact, the rest of the gospel will show them in a series of swings and misses, misunderstanding what the implications of what they saw on this mountain are. But one day, uh, after he had risen from the dead, and after the veil over their eyes had been taken away, uh, they would come to realize what this moment meant. When they gazed at Jesus, they gazed at the very glory of God. And when Jesus spoke, he spoke the very words of God. Uh, they were called to follow him and to listen to his words. And each and every one of us have the same call upon us as well this morning. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, I know that there are many things that Jesus says that are very difficult. Uh, certainly the things you find him say in the Gospels, but even more widely, knowing that the whole Bible is inspired by his Holy Spirit, uh, that he is the final word from God, and that means all of the Bible is from him. Uh, it hits each of us differently. Each of our lives are different. Each of the sinful patterns that we've fallen into are slightly different from each other. And yet we have this same obligation. Uh, not just to gaze on Jesus by faith, but to listen and live out his words. Uh, I wonder what are the things that Jesus says that are difficult for you to listen to and to live out. Uh, maybe it's the things he said about loving your enemy. Uh, even people who've done you such horrible wrong. Uh, Jesus says you're even to draw close and show them some manner of kindness, even though clearly their actions don't deserve it. Is that difficult for you? Uh, would you remember the one who said it? Remember his glory and his authority, the very word of God from heaven that gave you that word to listen to and live out. Uh, maybe it's a difficulty letting go of the things of this world. Maybe, frankly, you love father and mother, brother and sister. 
field and house. Uh, you love those things so much that you find it difficult to sacrifice them for the name of Jesus, even when it's clear he's calling you to do so in a moment. Uh, would you remember that the one who had all the riches of heaven is the one who commanded you to leave those things behind with the promise of greater riches, of fellowship with him and the very treasure room of heaven at your disposal. Uh, maybe the difficulty is with his command to deny yourself. Uh, maybe instead of cutting off your hand and plucking out your eye, uh, denying the impulses within you, maybe you've made a habit of giving in to them to the point where when Jesus says that you are not to live for the sinful flesh within you, it seems like part of you is dying to try and live that out. Would you remember that when Jesus died, he did so so we would die to sin and so that we could live for God by the power of the Holy Spirit? Uh, brothers and sisters, whatever command of Jesus or teaching the Bible gives, however difficult it is to live out, would you remember this truth? If you've gazed on his glory, then you must listen to his word. You'll never be sorry you did so. Uh, Jesus isn't just your friend or mentor. He's not just someone you give a high five. He is the eternal son. Uh, the one who radiates with the very glory of God from before the foundations of the earth and will for all eternity. And he calls you to himself with the very power of his Holy Spirit to help you. Would you trust him? Would you move forward in faith even when you don't understand how he will live up to his promises? Knowing all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Our brothers and sisters, we worship the risen Lord Jesus, the Son of Heaven, the Word of God, the very radiance of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ is ours. So we don't just gaze at his glory. We listen to his word. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song which has this theme of looking on the glory of God directly. As we sing it, I want you to reflect on how the very glory of God is yours in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, think about how he gave himself, his life, his body, his blood. And he gave it all so we could be saved. And now we must listen to him. Hear these words from Behold Our God. Who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Oh, brothers and sisters, behold our God. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we confess that you are the Christ of God, uh, that the very glory of heaven was yours before the world began, that we shall gaze on your glory for all eternity that you are the son of David, the true son of heaven, the Messiah, the chosen one, that you are the great prophet that sums up all the messages that came before you 
and that you are the assurance that all the promises of God are yes. Uh, So Jesus, now as we lift our voices to you, would you fill our hearts with your glory? Even though our eyes don't see you yet, Lord, through faith our hearts see you. Uh, Would you allow that vision of your glorious appearance to produce joy and obedience and faith? Thank you, Jesus. We worship you now in your name. Amen.